Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 3 of the podcast Wisdom on Trial. Uh, I really appreciate everybody who has engaged and keeps engaging with the podcast, and I hope you will enjoy the people I've lined up to interview this year as we kind of mine battle-tested people for wisdom on the practice of law and wisdom on life in general. So I hope you enjoy the first episode of season three. Our guest today is Hank Cox. Hank is a a board-certified criminal trial lawyer in Jacksonville. He is the go-to guy when a politician or a pro athlete or, frankly, anyone needs a serious criminal trial lawyer in Jacksonville. He's a director at the Bedell Firm and a former president of the Florida Bar. Um, He served on the Florida Supreme Court Innocence Commission. Um, And the first time I engaged with Hank was when he was given an award for the pro bono work he did on behalf of a uh, minor child. And it was work that both he and his wife, Mary, who's also a lawyer from Duke Law School, they engaged on a long, lengthy fight that was very meaningful. I think you'll enjoy the interview with the one-of-a-kind Hancocks. So it's not, it's not fulfilling your obligation as a lawyer to me. And the obligation is? To serve the people who need it. To serve the people who cannot help themselves. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life in law practice. So it is uh, December 31st, and I'm glad to be here with uh, Hank Cox from Jacksonville. Hank, thank you for setting aside the time. No, it's a privilege. Good to see you again. Don't see it enough. How are you? Uh, how are you finding the virtual world in terms of the impact it has on your uh, knowing we're in a different season of the world, legal community wise and all of that, but just you personally, your effectiveness, your, your ability to stay connected. How's it affecting you? Well, I think, I think to be fair, it's not what I found to be the most efficient uh, world to work in. And that, despite the fact that you're, theoretically working without distractions. You sit in an office, we have 14 lawyers here. Uh, At any given moment, somebody's going to walk in the door and either ask a question or share some interesting event with you. I may do the same thing with them. Uh, You lose all that, whether you want to call it the camaraderie, the collegiality, all that. That's all out the window when you're working at home. The other inefficient part that I found is simply, um, if I want something done, Ordinarily, I would go to one of the other lawyer's offices, maybe an associate, maybe another partner, and say, could you take a look at this and get back to me pretty soon? This is high priority. It's important. Now I've got to craft the email. I've got to find out which attachments go with it. I don't even know if the person's available to read it. <laughs> um, so you, what became the most important thing about three or four hours later, you can't even remember that was the most important thing. You're dealing with something else. So, uh, but we've had people in the firm who refuse to work at home and it's, it's a delicate, sensitive balancing act to tell you the truth. Yes. What's the worst job you've had in your career and the best job I read? You've had some fun jobs in your lifetime. I still, I still think one of the most exciting jobs I ever had was as a, I say as a kid, 
I paid for a great deal of college and law school by working in the Merchant Marines, shipping out on a freighter, uh, being assigned from a union hall in Brooklyn, New York, to ships that sailed out of New York or New Jersey Harbor. And 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, Puerto Rico, Holland, Germany, England, Scotland, uh, East Coast of the United States. That's exciting when you're that age. And it's really exciting when you're getting the same pay that the guys who do it full-time all their lives are getting. Uh, because the unions would not allow a separate pay scale for anybody. Uh, that was a product of a program that, the name you're old enough to remember, Hubert Humphrey, when he was vice president and we was the darling. I'm not old enough to remember Hubert Humphrey, for the record. Yeah, I understand. Uh, and I've heard about him. But anyway, he started a program because he was the darling of the big labor unions. So his idea was, let's employ youth in the summer. Well, this union was the Seafarers International Union of North America, Gulf Lakes, Inland Waters District, just so you know. And they said, we have 80,000, 90,000 members. We'll play. We, we think that's a great idea. And I don't think they hired more than three people for the entire summer. So I'm sure it helped the vice president of the United States in his efforts. Uh, so that was one job. Uh, when I was in law school, I had three jobs all the way through. One was for three nights a week doing the graveyard shift, managing a motel uh, in Lexington, Virginia, from 11 at night till 7 in the morning. Another one was managing the Humane Society shelter on the weekends. And the third was in tax season only, uh, preparing simple tax returns for people in a very rural area of Virginia. And I really always looked over my shoulder worried that many of them may have been indicted for tax fraud, not because I was committing fraud in the preparation of the returns, it's because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Right? And someone, so I, I periodically confirm that the statute of limitations is about six years. So I think they're all safe up there in the mountains. So anyway. The, the, the story of the gas station in your career is fascinating. So just to lay the foundation is you graduate from law school, I think, and then you're in Jacksonville because you decided Gainesville wasn't the place. Well, it was a little more than that. I, I got out of law school in Virginia, took the bar exam in the Virginia bar exam, I think the day after I graduated for no other reason than they, were, than they were giving it the day after I graduated. I had, like everything else leading up to that, never made any plans as to what I was going to do with my life. I never had. Uh, the only reason I was in law school is when I got out of college and some other friends applying to law school, everybody was hoping they weren't going to get drafted and go to Vietnam. When I got out, my brother was already in Vietnam, uh, so I crossed my fingers. But... Back then, you could get a deferment for college, but you could not get one for graduate school, not to enter the draft. So I got draft notice right at the beginning of the first year of law school. And within two months of me getting the draft notification, taking the physical in Roanoke, Virginia, and then told I had to report to Newark, New Jersey, to be inducted in three weeks, the uh, former President of the United States by the name of Richard Nixon instituted instituted the lottery. And that's a great event if you're if anybody was there. It was not a great event depending on what number you it's got. It's hard to imagine for anyone who's like I, I have not ever I I'm fifty one 
and I haven't been around for a, a draft. So the concept of a draft lottery, it sounds almost frightening when you hear it. Well, it's frightening. Not that I wouldn't want to serve, not that I wouldn't want to serve, not that I wouldn't want to do my duty, but it just, exactly. it just seems dramatic. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't that, you know, at least I wasn't coming up with the, you know, the fake injury, the problems to avoid it, but it's not something you really wanted to do either. So I get the notice and report to be inducted in three weeks in Newark, New Jersey, and President Nixon institutes the lottery. Uh, Curtis Tarr was the lottery director. And at that time, these are names you don't forget because this was the first lottery ever. Everyone knew if your number was below a certain level, say 120 or something, you were getting drafted and you were more than likely going to Vietnam. That was that simple. So I watched this lottery on television with about 25 other people I knew or sort of knew or some knew the others. A lot of beer being consumed and not a lot of joking and laughing or anything. Just everybody fixed the TV. It was almost total silence. And then they how many call, people in a room? How many how many people in a room? We probably had 20, 25 people in this room. And they were all draft eligible. So so we're watching this thing go, and as only Richard Nixon can do, he has some guy who looks like a hippie pulling ping pong balls out of the the machine to I guess to make the rest of the uh, active activists in the world feel better. Uh, they start pulling out the numbers. Well, I remember I had a good friend, and the number was six. I mean, he was number six, whatever birthday it was, which meant he was going. And you could have heard a pin drop in that place when, when he raised his hand and said, yeah, that's me, and just left the room. And it kept on going, and then I ended up being number 363, which meant if I was going, women and children were going, too. It just wasn't going to get that far, or we were going to be all out war. So... I got a notice the following week not to report. And so that was the end of that. Um, you know, my father served in the Pacific in World War II. My brother's in Vietnam. And so, you know, it's just, I wasn't going to enlist, but I had applied to, to uh, Navy JAG. That didn't go too well because you're not looking at the master of uh, great grades over his career. So. <laughs> and back then, you, you were not, you were not. You were, you were not a, a high-grade person? I was not a high-grade person. At, once I got through the sixth grade, when I'd done great those years, never again did I have high grades. So anyway, in answer, I, I, in, just tell you, in answer to your first question, I take the bar exam, and I had friends who were in law school at the University of Florida who had gone to Southeast Asia. They were catching up uh, at law school, and I think Florida at the time was on the quarter system where you could go around the clock and they could catch up more quickly than the, you know, summer's off stuff. And uh, I had $200 to my name, ran out of money within a few days in Jacksonville. I'd been to in the Merchant Marine. I said, well, let me try up there. And I came up here, got a job counting automobile parts in a warehouse from five in the afternoon till one in the morning, I think it was, or two in the morning, and then pumping gas in the daytime. And when you brought it up, I took the Florida bar. It was the last time they gave it in Jacksonville. Two friends came in from out of town to stay with me in my efficiency apartment. They had the bar review courses. I didn't have a cent to pay for a bar review course. So because of the shift in hours I'm working, I made a deal. You can stay with me, but I get your bar review courses when you guys are sleeping. We did that. We took the exam. 
But since I had not pre-applied to Florida, it was a full year I had to wait. I got the bar exam results, and two days later, I was pumping gas, and the elected state attorney drove in. Never met him. Strike up a conversation. He asked what I'm doing. I told him, and he said, well, I know two vacancies. He was general counsel for the city. He went back to be state attorney. But he said, I know of two assistant state attorney vacancies. Let me make a call and see if I can help you out. And three days later, I was an assistant state attorney. Now, that's not a lot of job interviews and going around writing letters. That's just pumping gas is all it was. And the right person comes in. One of the things that I uh, struck me um, was you can look at your current status of your career. And you've been the president of the Florida Bar. You were uh, nominated to the Constitutional Review Commission, where you get approved through that process. You're, you're, you are part of you know the most established firm in Jacksonville. You've done a lot with your career. Um, back when you were waiting that year. What did you think it was going to look like in in a thousand years? Did you ever see it looking like the way it actually has? No, I, I, I think it would be total nonsense to suggest I did. As a matter of fact, I mentioned earlier, you know, grades. Maybe my children won't listen to this or my grandchildren listen to this. Grades were never my strong suit. But one thing I, I've always been willing to do is watch and listen to how other people did things. And you learn a lot from that. Uh, and you can, I, I call myself for all those years, Davis survivor. Uh, I wasn't accomplishing things because I was motivated enough to do the best I could at something unless, until I started having the opportunity to do something. Then I would start doing the best I could at whatever that was. Uh, and it's, it's funny looking back. It, it, I'm pumping can you gas. say that again? Can you say yeah. that again? I, I apologize. I said once, once I, I just felt once I was latched on to doing something, I would do the best I could at whatever that was. I just wasn't out there hustling to find things to do. Uh, but, for example, I'm pumping gas, and I'm learning how to work on cars, and the next thing you know, I'm rebuilding the entire engine of a 1964 six-cylinder Mercury Comet like I'm career mechanic or something, because I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn how to do it. We're going to work hard at it and try to do it right. And just as an aside, yeah, this, you have to picture this, the image. I get a job as an assistant state attorney. The only car I've ever had is in this filling station, one of the bays, totally broken down. So I don't have any transportation. So the guy I was working for who owned the filling station said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll let you drive this olive green pickup truck that says Avondale Shell on the side of it to work every day and to home. If you come back after work every night and you do my books and you order the tires and you order the oil and you order the batteries and you do all that other work for me and we'll work it out that way. I said, fair enough, until, until your car gets rebuilt. And so that was about four months later. So you got a picture pulling into the courthouse parking lot every day, getting out, wearing a coat and tie of a green Avondale shell pickup truck, right? Going to work and walking the courthouse. And every day people were looking. That's the guy, you know, he must own the shell station or something. I don't know. So, 
So, so what, what were you visualizing? Like when you're back then you're at the gas station, did you ever dream of what your future would look like or what your career would look like? I, I, I think the honest answer is I did not visualize what the career would look like for the same reason I wasn't visualizing going to law school when I was in college. Uh, I didn't visualize going to the college I did go to. Um, you just, you're, you're moving along. Well, the only thing I, I think I focused on most in that one year wait from being admitted to the Florida bar because you had to pre-register, otherwise you had to go through all that stuff. The only thing I, I was really sensitive to is I've got seven years of student loans staring me in the face. And as you know, and the world knows, they become due a year after you graduate from the last use of the last loan. So that was weighing a little bit heavily on me. I need to do something, but I'm just not sure what I'm going to do. So I count automobile parts at night and in a huge warehouse and working here in the daytime. And all of a sudden, this guy drives in. and Here we are. Tell me if you were to pick the case you're most proud of, what would it be? Probably putting together a team of eight lawyers from five firms pro bono to represent a 12-year-old named Christian Fernandez. Christian Fernandez was indicted for first-degree murder in Jacksonville. Uh, essentially, he was 12. He got too rough with his two-year-old uh, Two-year-old had his head injured. He called his mother. His mother came home, and his mother decided to go online and look for different solutions to head injuries for little children, and eight hours later decided to take the child to a hospital. And by that time, the brain swelling, they couldn't keep the child alive. So the state, in its infinite wisdom, indicted the kid for first-degree murder. And Buddy Schultz, whom you know in Holland and Knight, uh, and I and Melissa Nelson, who was at McGuire Woods at the time, who's now the state attorney in this circuit, and five other lawyers sat around a table where we had already been working on pro bono representation of a young man who was 16 years old, who's now the poster child in the nation in the state courts, named Terrence Graham, <clears throat> where he had been sentenced to life in prison for a probation violation at the age of 16 on a charge of burglary. And it's uh, Graham v. Florida. It is the case that's led the way in the rest of the nation on eliminating mandatory life sentences for juveniles for non-homicides. And we were sitting around the table one time when this Christian Fernandez situation came up. And the suggestion was made at the table, let's offer our assistance to the public defender. We did. The public defender at the time had no idea how to take advantage of the resources we offered. Eventually, we filed a motion and the court granted the removal of the public defender and let us take over. And our mission was to keep that case with juvenile consequences. And for all practical purposes, we did. So you asked me the question. That's We're very proud of that. I can't hear you, Dave. I hit mute. I was I was basically saying I I read about it. It it seems like you know if I were to kind of dig into that, where I would want to ask you about is the kind of collaboration and how you 
deal with the checks and balances of working with, you know, strong, talented people and coming out with a unified legal representation. I've had co-counsel and I've worked on some complex cases, but I always find um, that is not an easy process. Uh, did you have a clear lead counsel? I, I want to say yes, we did, and no, we didn't. Buddy Schultz uh, was more of the the managing type. Let's put our heads together. Let's deal with that. Let's deal with this, et cetera. And I, I don't say anything to discount the remarkable talents of the other lawyers. As I mentioned, there were five firms involved. Uh, I took the lead in the courtroom stuff. There was a four-day suppression hearing on uh, – what the state claimed was some admissions by the child that he had hurt the two-year-old. Uh, Melissa Nelson joined in that. Uh, others took care of the research. So there, there wasn't the, and I know what you're talking about. I, I've been down that road uh, and I had one with David King. Not, I'm not talking about that problem with David King. Nobody had that problem with David King, uh, who to me was as good as it gets. But there was another lawyer involved in a case I had with David King where, <clears throat> what are we going to do about this ego constantly? You know, you know about that stuff. And it's a problem. You know, I'm better than well, you are. I can do it better than you can. The, uh, one, of the, one of the quotes about you that I wrote down, these are not your quotes, but it, said in a, it was a newspaper article. And it said, in a world where ego is king, his modesty is refreshing. It, and so clearly you have a modest undertone uh, to you. Is, is that accurate? I, I don't know. I mean, if, if anybody. <laughs> You're anybody, not willing to accept a modest. That's yeah. modest in and of itself. I would say, of course, yes, I'm the most modest yeah. person you've ever met. Right now, I, I, I will be the first to say that we all have egos. I mean, we, we do. I mean, it's just that thing. And I think, I don't know whether it factors into the definition of ego or modesty or whatever, David, but I, I do think, and you try to impress this upon other people, the value of watching and listening measured against trying to tell other people what you know and how you know it better uh, can't be underestimated. I just think, uh, I mean, that's the way I've always done. I'll never forget the first trial I ever had in my life. It was the most humiliating experience I'd had in that time period. I was a prosecutor. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Hadn't had any mentoring, any training. Didn't have any trial practice in law school. And they go, okay, go down there and try this case. It was a jury trial. And the, uh, I can't remember what, it was some misdemeanor, and the jury acquitted the defendant, I want to say six, it may have been seven minutes, and the forewoman went rushing out of the courtroom. And I turned to the bailiff, and I said, well, what's all that, what's that all about? What, what's with her? And he said, oh, you didn't know? Her husband's on trial for first-degree murder down the hallway. I wouldn't have put her on the jury. I went, yeah, I guess, well, that's lesson number one in this business. Keep asking questions and watching <laughs> What is it like to sit there at the moment where you've tried a first-degree murder case and you're waiting to hear, you're waiting for the jury to come back? What is that like? Well, it's, I don't think 
I think any lawyer in civil, criminal, you name it, will tell you there's nothing quite like that. You know that. The, the, it's, it's one step worse than the waiting for the knock. The knock is the worst of all. Uh, everybody likes to think they have all these courtroom systems and signals and they know when the jury walks out and all that nonsense. And of course, in my world, that's never worked. No, nobody's ever right. Uh, it shouldn't be right, actually. Uh, I don't know, but I mean, the worst waiting for a knock and then the knock, I can remember. I had a, I had a trial that took five months in Bradford County. And there were two other defendants, and they were corrections officers indicted for the murder of an inmate who was on death row. And the inmate was on death row for the murder of a police officer in Palm Beach. So this thing is almost like full cycle here. And five months is a long time to wait for that knock. Uh, and you do. And then <laughs> what was worse, actually, than the knock was the court decided to read the verdicts instead, giving it, instead of giving it to the clerk. And he read the verdicts for the other two defendants first. So I, I'm dying. I'm just going, oh, my God. And when the other two defendants were acquitted of all the charges, I'm like, this could be the worst moment of my life when I got the one guy that didn't. But they were all acquitted. But I'll tell you what, in, in answer to your question, those, those weights are brutal, just brutal. But anybody in this business knows that. It's brutal for the young lawyer trying the case for the first time. What, so, what tips would you have for people in dealing with uh, nerves? Nerves? I, I stay away from everybody when that's going on. And it's not because I'm difficult to deal with. Uh, it doesn't, I don't mean that. I just, I don't focus on anything else except what I'm worried about. You know, we can talk about let's play cards, let's play this to kill time, let's talk about such and such. Uh, I'd rather be away than alone. Uh, probably one of the reasons I like to fish, often fish alone, is because uh, you know it's just a world where you you think through and also, and I don't know how you do it. I, I should put the shoe on the other foot and ask you some questions here. When you're in a serious trial and you're getting gearing up for that final argument or the tough cross examination that's coming up, and this trial's more than a day or two. How do, you know, the question is, how do you get ready for that? You sit down, pencil and pad, start scribbling or what? And what I've always done and how it started, I don't know. I just go outdoors and I'll walk the streets and think it through and, and practice it. And people, neighbors look at me like I'm crazy. The guy's talking to himself, right? But, you know, that's, you know, are you telling this jury that such and such? <laughs> what jury? Their neighbors are like, what is this guy totally whack up out there? But that's how I do it. You know, I can't sit there with a bag. I'm, I'm sure your neighbors are used to you walking around like a crazy man. They probably love it. Yeah, we go along pretty well. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's what I do. Now, how do I tell? I don't know what to tell somebody else on how to deal with it. And as you know, everybody's different in how they deal with stress, uh, tension, all that stuff. Let, let, let me ask you about that uh, walking as the creative process. So you're walking along, you're visualizing. It, it seems like almost uh, practicing. Is there? Are you visualizing yourself doing it, or are the words just coming out of your mouth? Or how do no, you? I'm, 
I'm visualizing. I'm visualizing that I am either standing at a podium looking at that witness or standing at a podium looking at that jury. Um, and I will I will use the hand gestures while I'm walking. You know, the hands, are you telling me, are you trying to tell us, you know, that kind of stuff? I, I, you know, I, I can't help that. Uh, but, but that's what I do. Um, I'm not sure anybody had ever suggested to me, and I don't know if you could tell somebody to, because that's a character, or not a character thing, what do you call it? It's a personality thing or whatever. It's, it's you. So to tell somebody else, here's what you need to do about stress, right? Here, have an Ambien. <laughs> yeah, here, go see a doctor. <laughs> listen, listen, we're all looking for the magic carpet, you know, the magic carpet that will take us to a more peaceful, less stressed place. So any, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, anything I, I, I hear, like, I, I'll give you an example. When I was reading some of the articles about you, I read about you keeping a fishing pole in your car. Is that true? Yeah, well, that was true. That's true if I'm traveling, like Pensacola, Panama City, that kind of stuff. Gaines, not Gainesville, that's not far. Tampa, uh, Stewart, Palm Beach. If, the, if it's the right time of year, I would keep it in the car in case I was driving along and had the time. And I saw, the only reason I had it is if I saw other people on the side of the highway at some creek or canal fishing like they were doing well, I'd pull over and check it out, right? talk to them. Always talk to them first. Never get out with a pole, right? They'd be offended that somebody else was encroaching on their territory. But if you get to know them, you talk to them, you get friendly with them, and go, what are you using? Uh, I, got a pole in the, I got a pole in the car, right? But, you know, why not, right? I mean, that's a, that's a break from what you're doing all the time. So. The, the blazer and khakis, it's like it, the – I read somewhere this – that you have taken a blue blazer and khakis and elevated it to an art form. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true. Um, I will say the, the, the test of that, and there are two things about this. When I was sworn in as president of Florida Bar, they have this thing they do at the annual meeting, and they get, and they get so many people being sworn in. The audience is big. The audience isn't big because I'm there. But traditionally, after you right before you get sworn in or the president gets sworn, the incoming board of governors of Florida Bar, they're sworn in. There are 51 of them. And they come up out of the audience and step and line up in front for the chief justice to give the oath. I am waiting to get sworn in because after I get sworn in, I got to give the speech. And so I'm really, really sweating bullets about this speech. I'm really nervous. And I never noticed until I was told afterwards and saw the pictures that all 51 members of the Board of Governors, men and women, were wearing a blazer, white button-down shirt, and khakis when they came up. 51 of them. It was really embarrassed that I didn't notice that. <laughs> Everybody else noticed it, but I didn't notice it. Uh, at, and, what, at what age do you decide, this is my uniform, I'm sticking to the khakis and blazer, uh, that's, I'm, I'm going all in? I'll tell you exactly what it was. There was an actual event that triggered that. I had had a trial very early on. Well, first of all, I couldn't afford suits. I mean, I really couldn't. I didn't, I didn't have anything to start with. So whatever I made as a brand new assistant state attorney is what I made. But early on, I had a serious trial. I think it was back then you were stuck with murder trials really early on. 
So I had this trial, and it ended up resulting in a mistrial for some reason. I got a letter from a juror afterwards, and she said, I want you to know that you have mastered the art of the underpaid public servant with that blazer and khakis coming before us. And it is really effective. And it's a wonderful letter. And I don't know who she was, and I couldn't remember which juror she was. And I'll never forget that. And I said, well, I'm not giving that up. Uh, when I, if, I ever make enough, if I ever make enough money How many years it, ago was that? How many years ago was that? I could do the math on that's embarrassing. That would be probably 41 years ago, 42 years ago. Yeah. So they made blazers and khakis back then. Yeah, they still do. <laughs> so anyway, ever since it's it's been the trademark. I mean, I don't I don't like to think I got a trademark, but I think the other people they they'll be surprised if they see me in something other than a blazer and khakis. Now in trials suits, obviously, you know, federal court does not invite blazers and khakis. Yeah. So, uh, do you wear? Do you ever wear blazers, blazer and khakis in a federal court trial? No, no, I probably wouldn't. Unless it was a long trial, then then you got to get a little variation to the theme there, right? That that's a footnote to the uh, your 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 blazer khaki style would be exception colon federal court. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any other exceptions other than federal court that are across the board exceptions for you? No, for that no, no. But but you, I mean, it's like everything else. It's like somebody wears a bow tie. All the time, right? I don't ever wear a bow tie. And I wouldn't feel natural wearing a bow tie. Okay? But people who wear bow ties can are comfortable wearing them anywhere, which is fine, you know, understand that. So um I I need to uh say your wife seems like an extraordinary woman just reading about her and the natural thing is I actually usually avoid talking about someone's spouse because they they always want to talk so much about them, but it does not feel honoring to you without like, it, it seems like she has allowed you, you know, and she's well-educated Wellesley Duke law school men are at you men are at the state attorney when from the outside looking in, it seems to me, and, and I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, you have gone further than you ever could have without her, you know, being a side-by-side teammate. Well, you know, I, I mean, think everyone describes that dynamic differently. The way the way I describe it, a couple of things, David. First of all, there's no question that I like to sort of smile and say, "Well, this child went to Penn, and this child went to Vanderbilt. This child went to Columbia, and other things." But to think that any of that could have happened without her is absurd. And to think that 95% of it isn't attributable to her is the reality of it. But be that as it may, uh, I mean, she's, she is one of those people who's a master at a lot of things. Uh, forget the children being remarkable products of predominantly her efforts. Uh, she has been the recipient of uh, Florida's Family First annual award for what she did in the Guardian and Litem program for the same 12-year-old I mentioned. For five years, every Saturday, she drove seven hours round trip to see that kid at some far-off juvenile facility near Tampa. Uh, and for, for what? Because she thought it was the right thing to do. So that's what she's always done. So. 
and the and the kids see it too. You know, I I always quote Major Harding, Justice Harding, as the my great answer to all the things we try to teach people between right and wrong. And Major said when I was a young lawyer, he's chief judge here. He said, you know, we've got civility programs, we got professionalist programs, we got ethics programs. But if your mother didn't teach you right, what the hell are we supposed to do about it? And the only thing that's not true is Major would never use the word hell in a sentence. But beyond that, that was his point. If, if, if you didn't get raised right, these programs aren't really helping us a lot. Uh, and there's a lot of truth to that. I believe that. So, And that's the way she raised them, and that's the way she... So to me, when that's what you get home to, it's a good reminder of the, the right and wrong stuff and what people should be doing. Uh, so anyway, I don't know if that answered your question. Well, uh, what if, if you were to be bold and give one piece of marital advice, knowing every marriage is different and you're just assume you have complete freedom to share the piece of marital advice that, that has been most significant to you? What's the best advice I've ever received or <laughs> what, no, what did I, no, what, no, have no. I learned, many, what have I learned many, from all this? Correct. How many years have you been married? 40. 40. And boy, I better be right on that. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. 40. 40. (laughs) Yeah, I knew I was 40. Um, I I really, I think the the single most important lesson that I, I won't say I've learned, I keep learning over and over and over again, is don't ever think that what you do and who you are is more important than that relationship and who she is. You know, your problems, your problems are not the only problems people have in this world. Your issues are not the only issues in this world. Um, so. That's great. That's, that, that's helpful. That, that could make it a, a book, by the way. Greatest lawyer I knew when I first started was from Jackson named Eddie Booth, the late Eddie Booth. And Eddie pulled me aside. He sort of took me under his wing. Uh, i got to tell you a funny story about being taken under your wing, which is by Major Harding. But Eddie Booth took me under his wing one time, and he said, I, I want to tell you something. And it is, don't make the mistake I made. And Eddie Booth was the best lawyer anybody ever saw hanging around this city. He said, don't ever find yourself not finding more than enough time for those children. He said, don't make that mistake I made. And, he, and he, his children were great, but he felt that he had not carried the ball in what he should have done. And I could, I could echo that right now. Despite the advice, I would trade anything to have spent more time with the children than I did. Yeah. I, I don't have a category for this, but the words, uh, you know, uh, he took me under his wing, that, that notion, if I look at um, it looks like you've had a lot of people that have taken you underneath their wing. And I, I don't know if it's a lot. Uh, Eddie Booth did. Justice Harding did. Uh, Ed Austin did, who was state attorney uh, for years here. Uh, and there are more I could think of. There certainly are. I, don't, I hate to do that. And I'll tell you somebody who did <laughs> later. Later on was Sandy Dalbert. It was just marvelous to me. Another Florida Supreme Court justice. So here's the question, knowing I love pulling out kind of portable 
you know, things we can put into practice. What did you do that made you the kind of person or created an environment where someone like those people were willing to take you underneath their wing? I think it's a variation of the same thing I started with. We watch and you listen and they notice that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how else to describe that. Uh, you stay low-key, polite, respectful. Uh, you know, I've always, I don't know how you learn any better than watching what other people do. It doesn't mean you can do it the same way, but you're watching and listening. and Because uh, they had no reason to. I wasn't doing anything magic that they should say, why should I help him out or not help him out? I use Eddie Booth as an example. When <clears throat> another attorney and I, Warren Anderson, decided to leave the state attorney's office after almost seven years, uh, we were going to set up in a certain location in Jacksonville. And Eddie Booth was in, if Bedell wasn't, his was the best firm in the city by far, uh, with Walter Arnold and Chuck Arnold and Eddie Booth and Steve Stratford. And Eddie came to me and said, I understand the, the location you guys are going to use isn't going to be ready yet for another two months. I've got an extra office here. Come up here and work with us. And I thought, wow, what an honor with those guys. But he did that, I think, because he just was always great to me. And despite the fact that he had defended with his partner and I had prosecuted somebody for what was at the time the highest profile murder in years in Jacksonville. It was the first televised case other than the one that was in Miami under the post-Newsweek experiment. Um, and he lost, and he was such a gentleman and so gracious, it didn't change anything. And I thought, there's a message in that. Here he was, you know, highest profile, and he loses, and he's treating me like that. So I said, that tells me something about him. And say much. It doesn't tell me anything about me, but it tells me something about him. So, mm. yeah, that's 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 humility and collegiality. I don't want to leave the watch and listen thing, though. Um, what for? For assume you're you're engaging with some younger lawyers, and and they're you know thirty, whatever. They could be forty or twenty five, and they. Uh, how would you encourage them? What things can they do to try? Because what I, what I see is most lawyers want to not watch and listen. They really want you to know what they already know. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm trying to visualize David being with a small group of, of younger lawyers and talking to them. Uh, and only back up a little bit from that with a example of what I've always thought was true. And that is, and use, let's use state attorney or public defenders or government offices as an example, where the aggressive, ambitious young lawyer who's only been at the state attorney's office for a year wants to get out there in the private sector and, and kill the world. The lawyers that that lawyer would be willing to go into private practice with is probably a hundred times the number of lawyers he'd be willing to do it with after he's practiced for seven or eight years. The, the window narrows and it narrows and it narrows because you're watching and you're listening 
and say the people I would have gone to, I don't have that much respect for now. They don't work hard. They don't enjoy the respect of the judiciary, et cetera. But this narrow window. And so you see, I think, <coughs> it, you know, it's a it's a it's not only watching and listening. It's your own experience with people then where, you, where you're watching and seeing it. Um, and there are other ways to. To you know, undergo that exercise. You could be active in some bar events. You could be, I think, were you watching other people work all the time? Who do they listen to? Who do they not listen to? Who's always talking just to hear themselves talk? That kind of thing. Uh, you know. So, I'm not sure what I would tell them other than, uh, if, if I trusted him, I would say, okay, let's start off. Who do you think are the good warriors? That, you know, enjoy the respect of the judiciary, whatever. And I've I've been in those conversations with younger lawyers, and they'll say, "Well, I, I really like so and so." And I might say, "Well, you may be the only one who likes that person or respects that person because I don't know a single judge who does, right?" But you tell, but you tell them why. You don't say, you say because because that judge, that lawyer misled such and such a judge. Uh, and there are plenty of anecdotes you can share, not about oh, you can share them about particular lawyers, but Behavior, behavior, behavior that, that you're telling them about. So, um, it, you know, it's just, it it's seems like, like there's a, it seems like, you know, in the watch and listen, like when you're using the state attorney example and the public defender, I, do I hear you saying be patient and kind of watch a little longer before you just jump off on your own? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think. You know, everybody's got their own comfort level, all right? But that, you know, there's a difference between comfort level and ambition, I think. And if you're young and ambitious and you want to do, you know, you want to make a lot of money, you want to work with those guys because they're high profile, see them, you know, out there marketing all the time. That's to me not a comfort level. The comfort level is, can I, I may be a little short on some areas, but can I compete? Will the judge listen to me when I talk? Don't want him to agree with me. Will he listen when I speak? Right? And I think that's when that's the comfort level you need to get. Right? And you may be encouraged by others. You may say, you know, I may say, Dave, uh, how much longer are you going to hang around? I may not be offering you a job, but I may say, how much longer are you going to hang around? You, you've done a really impressive work here. Uh, don't short shrift your family and your children if. There are other things you want to do, uh, but those things sort of happen when they happen. Uh. Yeah, it, it, it will. Do you have uh, it, it seems like, you know, looking at your career, you've really had the Bedell firm for a lot of years uh, since 96, 96. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, you know, that's almost quarter of a century. You were at the state attorney's office for how many years? Almost seven. Um, what, what, what are, what, what, if your kids and you have four kids, I think they're all lawyers. Um, three, three, do you, kids. Do you, three lawyers, three kids, three lawyers, right? Three lawyers, wife, a lawyer, three what kids, is, lawyers. What, what general career advice do you give them? Well, they've already, they're already on their paths. It's interesting. Uh, 
that, well, three, two of the three children are also married to lawyers. The third one is not. Um, none of them has pursued anything close to the type of law I've done all my life. Not one. Uh, commercial, commercial, uh, commercial. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's really, really. And 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 I always thought, oh, they, I want to grow up. I want to be like Dad. Horse manure. Not one of them <laughs> even tried. I don't think they even thought about it. I think I think part of it was they weren't getting much encouragement from my wife to be like Dad because. You're out of town. You're working late nights and all that stuff. And 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 so she, I don't think she was. You get home after a week or you home late at night. I don't think she's singing my praises. Oh, dad was so great. He got home at midnight. But boy, he's great doing that stuff, right? So I don't think they. But they did. They did pick up on an interest in practicing law very much so, and they all they all did. Do you think it's possible to try those? cases of great magnitude. And by that, I mean, I'm not talking about a week-long trial. I'm talking about a multi-week-long trial with high stakes mm -hmm. and not work those late hours. Is that no. even possible? No, I don't believe so. I don't know how you could do it unless you had an army of associates and support getting every single thing ready for you. And they handed you the script when you stood up the next morning. But I don't think any great word does it that way. I mean, I, can't, I don't know any. The, the lawyers yeah. I know, I, who I think have really accomplished a lot in that trial world, are grinding it to get ready. And they're covering every base and checking every, you know, dotting every I and crossing every T that they can think of anyway. They get, they get stung once in a while because they didn't think of it. I'd like to I'd like to shift gears now to be a little uh, I'm going to play I'm going to play a game with you um, that I, I, I tried a buddy of mine gave me this. He said, try this out and see what it's like. It was fun. Uh, so I'll try it. I'm just going to say a word and you're going to say the first thing that comes to mind on the word. There's no wrong answer. It's just whatever. I'll, gi I'll give you a word like uh, lawyer. John DeVault who's your uh, partner, Bar Association. Jack Harkness. The police. Skeptical. Prosecutors. <laughs> well, what one word comes to mind? Trust. Where can lawyers still make a difference? I think people are motivated to make an impact and make a difference, but they don't know what is the place they can put it into action. So it's almost so ambiguous and uh, unreachable. So it's like this low level tension of, I want to make a difference. I want to do good things. But uh, I find if I'm being really honest, I find it hard even personally, to find the right place to, uh, to right. do something. I think, I th well, I think you have to distinguish between what's well, just called doing good, for lack of a better way to describe it, doing the right things and trying to make a difference and trying to make a difference and be recognized for it because the latter isn't the best motivated purpose. 
we can think of. If I'm just doing this so I can be acknowledged or recognized or get an award or something, then then you're not really probably making much of a difference. Uh, I think that there are untold opportunities out there for lawyers to seize upon. there are untold, unhandled cases that the legal aid organizations in Florida are having to deal with, uh, more so than ever. Uh, what's really going to become a nightmare is when the eviction moratorium gets lifted. And I was listening to NPR the other day. They were saying, what's going to happen? Because when that comes, you got some companies and landlords that are going to unleash evictions. on. They, there was something like, I can't remember, a million or some people or have three quarter, close to a million people who are behind on their obligations rent-wise and everything, well, it could unleash an avalanche of that kind of stuff where people are going to need help. You're going to put them in the street. What are you going to do? Or mortgage foreclosures, et cetera. On the other hand, uh, they did make the observation that the landlords do want money. They do want somebody paying some kind of rent, so they may not want to evict them all. But those are the, the little things. But those don't get anybody any attention to help all those people. Uh, <clears throat> I bet if you walked into any legal aid office and talked to the director of that legal aid office and said, as a, as a lawyer, is there something I can do to help? That would be a quick answer, a quick answer. So let's uh, let's this is a part where I like to get practical and I like it uh, if we can shorter answers just because sure. the, I, I have a bunch of practical advice things. So I'm really just trying to mine for practical advice because you're really while while you do a lot, you're also a, a clinician. You all you're a practicing trial lawyer and a director of a law firm. So I'm looking for just quick nuggets of wisdom whatever thoughts you have on a bunch of different areas. And if I were to pick one to start, it would be what is the best advice you can give on not getting angry at people who make you angry on the other side? I, I, I confess it's probably a, a question I might have been better asked 10 years ago than I am now because I find myself, and I think it's true, with less and less patience and intolerance for people I think are just, you know, can't see the right way to do things. You know, and when I say the right way to do things, I don't mean whether you do or don't take a deposition. I'm talking about whether or not you take a position publicly on something or you argue a position, whatever. Um, you know, that, that to me, that's a personality thing. Um, <laughs> I think it, my, my answer, that it depends on who I'm with. If I'm with people I don't know or don't know that well, I'm, I'm pretty good at controlling, taking a deep breath and go back to my thing, be quiet and listen. You know, I may be seething. But, you know, just be quiet and listen. Uh, there's some, I work with a couple of people here where I don't blink before I'll tee off about something. <laughs> and they'll go, what are you, what are you so upset about? I said, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, disagreements. Uh, I, I get, for example, I, I, I get intolerant of lawyers not willing, what we talked about earlier, not willing to do pro bono work or do something that helps the greater good. And, 
I don't see being asked to serve on some board as filling that obligation. That's great. And why not? Because to me, that that is a backdoor way to market. I mean, a lot of people would do that for marketing purposes and everything else. And, um, you know, collegiality, your friends, whatever, get to know people. But it's they can find all sorts of people to sit on that board. They don't have to be lawyers. They don't have to be you. Uh, we all do it. We all serve on them because we enjoy what that organization does. But if I agree to serve on such and such a board, I'm doing it because I enjoy that stuff and like it. I'm not going to serve on a board because I don't like what they do or something like that. So so it's it, not it's not fulfilling your obligation as a lawyer to me. And the obligation is? To serve the people who need it. To serve the people who cannot help themselves as well as they could without your help. Right. I mean, those what do you say to the person? What do you say to the person who says that's not my obligation? Never heard that before. <laughs> they don't give me free milk and bread down at the grocery store. And you're right. You're right. But you took. You know, you you got a license. You agreed to accept that license, take that oath, and uh, that's what separates you from the guy who should be able to get the free milk and bread at the store. Right. Go help the guy who needs the milk and bread. So. Uh, but anyway, I just, I just, okay. Yeah. That's good stuff. And I love talking about it. Uh, I, I, I love your, uh, your passion for it. I, I'm my undertone. What I'm taking away is uh, a reminder that real pro bono legal work, a, a way to see it is Look at your motive. If your if your motive has it all built into it, something to self promote, to make you more significant. If it's a social motive, it's it's you, what you're encouraging people is do the really selfless, unnoticed uh, grind. I think of, both are fine. Both are fine. I don't I don't have any problem with the first categories you mentioned. As long as you do in the second. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. And you may be able to do the second even better because of your participation in other things. You may learn about other people who need things. Uh, I mean, I've been on a board where uh, it comes up that employees have certain problems that desperately need help in that organization and they don't know where to go. And you're sitting there as a lawyer. You know where to send them. You know how to help them or find out people who can. So that's a helpful. That's very helpful. Plus, you at the same time you're contributing to the organization, doing things you believe in. So, you are uh, known in the Jacksonville community uh, as a lot of things, but one of the things you're known as is a problem solver. Um, I don't know if you like that label being put on you, but that is one of the labels that is on you. That if 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 there's a problem in Duval County, um, Hancock's is on the short list of solving problems. David King, who recently passed in Orlando, he was always on the short list of solving problems in Orlando. What, what are the keys to someone who's younger? They don't have the benefit of your life experience, but they, they, they would like to be a problem solver. They would like to uh, work their way or earn their way to be the next Hank Cox. What should they do? Oh, that, that sounds a little 
over flowery when you say that, okay? Um, I, I believe, first and foremost, to be able to solve a problem, and I don't know how else to say it, I can, I can help solve a problem if you know going into it, I can kick ass if I have to. And we're not going to be in a problem-solving mode. So I have the, you know, may have the ability to assess strengths and weaknesses of both sides and say, you're going to get your rear end kicked if you keep taking that position or you, you know, you got to respect what they're saying. Uh, but you got to be able to, if you were in that position, back it up. Right? If things fall apart, you got to be able to back it up and say, no, you're wrong. Um, I know that uh, very recently, oh, talking about things we're very proud of too, uh, the Duval County School Board got into a war with the city over whether to put this sales tax referendum on the ballot, half-cent sales tax. And it was to improve dilapidated schools, farm systems, you name it. It was all capital improvements. And it was a huge proposal. The city of Jacksonville wouldn't put it on the ballot, even though the law says they don't have that choice. Their only job is to get it on the ballot. I'm talking about the city council. And they wouldn't do it. So the school board asked if we would consider representing them. We did. Uh, recruited McGuire Woods, recruited another couple of lawyers. And we did it. And for the first time in the history of consolidated government in Jacksonville, we put a chink in the armor of the general counsel's absolute control over the city because it's consolidated government. So they represent everybody. And they said, you can't sue us. We represent the school board. The school board says, you're fired. They said, you can't fire us. The charter says we represent you. Well, watch. And they did. And they, they hired us. And it was tense. And twice we got letters from the city saying you're violating such and such rules of the Florida bar. And we're going to report you. We said, well, you do what you have to do. And lo and behold, we litigated it and we won we won the right to sue the city, which was the big, big plus in the whole mix. And we forced it forced the city council to put it on the ballot. And when it came crunch time and we saw the city was paid, had paid, I think, over three hundred thousand dollars to fight us to some outside law firm they hired. We announced we weren't going to charge the school board a cent for that. It was a right thing to do. <laughs> so, yeah. Which really made that law firm feel like petty you know so. but but those are opportunities that come along so forget that they how do me. those come along like like to the younger i get it they're they really are they're awesome battles but how does how well, do you position go back to my point they they may they may not say be saying we want Hancock because he can win that war but there is a certain level of confidence that Hancock can put together a team that might be able to win that war. And we trust Hank to do that and to bring in, and they did. And, and I was fortunate in getting these other people to agree. So the, the question doesn't turn so much on me, David. It turns on Audrey Moran or Scott Cairns or Cameron Kynes or Hal Houston or Michael Lockamy who said, yeah, that's the right thing to do. We'll join that fight. It's, it's how they look at things. And they're seizing the opportunity that was put out there. Instead of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't, you know, that's a public fight. That's a political fight. I'm not going to do that. So kudos what, to them. What, they saw the opportunity. What are, you, what, what are some of the uh, keys to collaborating in that fashion? I see that. I see the theme with the Duval County School Board case, the Christian Fernandez case. I, I could go through others, but 
putting together a uh, seamless or as seamless as it can be talented legal team, how do you do that? Well, I, I, I laugh because I don't know if you know David Wells, who's in the college at McGuire Woods. I mean, uh, not Gunster. I'm sorry, he was at McGuire. He's a Gunster up here. And David always says, just like Terry Schmidt says, if I see a message to call Hank Cox, I know I'm going to get sucked into doing something that isn't going to be profitable. <laughs> right? The way it is. So you get David Wells and David, you work together. He's, David, to me, now that John DeVault has pretty much retired, is the John DeVault David King of Jacksonville. But his motivation and drive is you tell me it's the right thing to do, I'm on the team. Kevin Hyde at Foley Lardner, same way. You know, big firms. I mean, so you, know, you, you work with them in the past. There's some camaraderie, there's some respect, and they know they, they, they're going to bring associates into it, too, who aren't going to be compensated. They know that, but they're willing to do it because this issue is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to rebuild the oldest school buildings in the state of Florida. That was the right thing to do. Why is the city council thinking that they're the school board instead of the school board being the school board? So we fought it. We fought it in court. The legal work was remarkable, and we won and then the rules changed. But they all, you, saw the, they all saw the opportunity and they seized it. They got nothing. Do you ever, do you ever wrestle with the, the do-gooder versus the uh, business side of it personally? I'm talking about you personally. Do you ever feel that tension? No. Uh, and I've been accused of that by partners over the years that I have give absolutely no consideration to the business side, to the financial side, to whatever side it is. Now, I don't, and I don't really. I figure we're going to get through it, right? Um, and and you do get through it, you really do. But that's one of the reasons why um, you get different firms involved. You know, you bring it in, so they know they're all sharing. They're not. Nobody's taking the big hit. Okay, I can I can give up thirty hours of associate work, and you give up thirty hours over there, Foley, and you at Gunster, and you at McGuire, and all that stuff, and, and we'll do it that way. Then everything's fine. I say fine. That, you know, they're not. As I said, I don't know what their huge national management people are thinking about it. But. <laughs> they're probably like your partners. They're like, why will you not focus a little more on business? Exactly. Exactly. But you know, let me. But then, they, our, then they realize. They realize the tangible qualities of having a Hank Cox around, and they're like, "You take the good with the bad. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna have some massive pro bono projects, but you're also gonna have great impact." Well, having Hank Cox around for this firm, I can assure you, has not adversely affected the business side of things. Okay, <laughs> don't worry about. It. Don't worry about us. That, we're, we're doing okay. I know you are. I know you are. I know you are. I'm wondering if you, the level of tension you feel, but it sounds like you're, you're producing, you're, you're able to work through it because it's a both and not an either or. And, and let me, let me be totally fair to give credit where credit's due. I'm at the Bedell firm, right? I mean, Chester Bedell died in the early mid eighties, but John DeVault, inherited the Chester Bedell attitude of what we should be doing. John DeVault's attitude, 
from the day I started here and with this firm was if it's the right thing to do and we can do it, we're going to do it, right? And it wasn't one of those, let's sit around and debate whether we can do it or not. If it's the right thing to do, we're going to do it. So, you know, and, and John had a sense of whether it was prohibitively expensive or whether we should bring in more people. But he inherited the Chester Bedell and had it himself, which is, let's look at it. And if we should, we should. So, yeah, it's uh, I love that phrase. If it's the right thing to do and we can do it, we're not going to talk about it. We're going to do it. And what I'm going to do is pivot. What's the most important piece of cross-examination? Make the witness give the answer you want. Best piece of wisdom for dealing with judges that do not read. They don't read the, the pleadings. <laughs> You're going to have to edit this. I'm trying to think of which judges do. Uh, <laughs> don't you dare put that. That's, that's, my, that's our word. That comes out. Um, I, 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 I think it's probably the same argument you would make to a jury. Your, the jury doesn't have the pleadings. You've got to tell them. You've got to educate them. So you do it the same way. Building trust with judges when you're younger. Show respect in what you say. Show respect in how you look. Show respectful behavior to anyone around you in that courtroom, no matter what's going on. Uh, and I, I think judges pick up on that. Building respect with your uh, opposition. And by opposition, I mean... It yeah, could be the state attorney, whoever it is, whoever your opposition is. I think you, well, it's, it's, this sounds almost biblical. You want to treat them the same way you want them to treat you. But uh, I, I think to be personally critical, condescending, or demeaning, no matter what it is they say or argue, is a huge mistake. Um, that's, those are the things people don't forget. And you never uh, if you have to be critical of some position they're taking, don't do it in front of someone else. Because it's human nature. If you say something critical of me or you say something that I think might be embarrassing in front of someone else, that's all I remember about that conversation. I don't remember what the hell it is you're talking about. Uh, it's just like terminating a person or chewing out an employee. You never do it in front of somebody else because they don't remember what you said. They remember you embarrassed them. Uh, <clears throat> The other thing is with, with adversaries, if you can give or budge, do it. If it's not important, let it go. Don't make fights out of the little stuff. And if they need extra time, by God, you give it to them. You agree. I, can't, I just can't imagine three times in my life I, I was unable to agree in all these years of some extra time that the adversary wanted it. And you can bet your whatever. There are plenty of times I need it, and people remember that. Oh, yes. Uh, opening statement. Short. Promise nothing you can't produce. What's the biggest mistake you see, most common mistake most trial lawyers make? Uh, one would be being overly dramatic in front of judges or jurors. Two is almost like the brief that tries to argue 15 points when they ought to zero in on two or three. 
uh, narrow the points you're trying to make, make those effective. I do think I do think younger lawyers in a courtroom in trials forget arguments to the jury or whatever. They they can they're cap- they often overreact to things. You know? I remember the great example of a, one of the best criminal defense lawyers I ever knew years back before he passed away. He would sit there and somebody could be just laying into his client in front of that jury, and he'd be sitting there like, "Never hurt me." You know, no big deal. Mm-hmm. We all we all knew mm-hmm. that was coming, <laughs> you know? but uh, it's how you react. Because I think I think judges and jurors read a lot into how people react to things. So anyway, um, if if you were to talk to a large group of people, the 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 group of people that are in the first season of their career, say twenty. Uh, five to 35 and you were to give them one piece of advice, what would it be? Practice away from other people. What do you I mean by my, that? Well, I use my example of walking the streets. If you practice and practice, then once you get to that point, you know what you're going to say, you know how you're going to say it, you know where you're going to direct it to. That's why you practice. You know, that's why God made mirrors for some people. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people practice in front of mirrors. Uh, you know, it's, life, life isn't like one constant moot court where everybody's judging everything you do. You can judge yourself pretty well, right? And you know when you practice whether you're, you're doing it effectively or not. You know, How many, I did a, uh, you, David, I did a, I did a Ted talk once and I was terrified, but it was just, and I had, when I did it, you were not allowed to use teleprompter. You could not use notes. And it was from 15 to 17 minutes and you did it in front of this huge live audience and it was being videotaped for YouTube where it is. You talk about practicing, how you say it, what you're saying, everything else. I mean, that's that to me was as tough as any trial I ever had because I didn't use a note, couldn't use one, anything like that. I, I, I watched it. I watched it. And for anyone listening to this, if they want to watch it, they, if you Google uh, Hank Cox, C-O-X-E, TEDx Jacksonville, you'll you'll see it. it. It's good. You did great. You really did. I could feel the energy of the room like you can in the have you have you watched it? Uh, I watched it way back then. I wanted to see how it looked. Uh, you notice blazer and khakis. Right? <laughs> I mean, we all have a deal. Go with what works for you. Yeah. Uh, go, go, go into a second set of people, okay? Uh, these are people 45 to, let's say, 55. They've, they've established their career. Um, but they still have a lot, a lot of time to go. They, they, they're not in the end of their career. They still have a lot of, a lot of gas in the tank. What advice would you give them? I don't know if I would give them advice. I think at that point, they, they have a sense of what they've done right and what they've done wrong. We all have that sense. And uh, I mean, I would, I would sit there and go, who am I to suggest at that point what they should or shouldn't do? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure people change at that point. Hmm. Well, let's assume that uh, 
you were not allowed off with a no answer. Um, and you had to answer something because you had a skilled examiner who was following up. I think it might be less advice than beginning with questions. What have you done? If you're talking about 45 years old or whatever, what have you done that you remember that stands out that you wish you hadn't done? And what did you do to change it? Right. Or was it something you couldn't change? But by and large, uh, you know, all the way from the most minor, the pen clicking thing in the front of the jury where you're doing that uh, versus, you know, I, I, I need to hone down a theme more effectively than I have in the past. There's a better way to do it. That can you know, the substantive stuff uh, and see what they say and just take it from there and talk talk it through with a few people because everybody's got things they remember that they've done that are pretty serious that they wish they hadn't done it. They've, they've tried to work hard on changing it. Um, you know, we've all done that. Uh, and that's beyond the, I, I remember arguing in front of a judge one time and I was so upset and I didn't show it other than I pitched this big book back onto the council table and it sounded like a bomb went off. And the judge looked down. I, I, I just put my hands up. I said, that was not intentional. <laughs> so. what, what breaks your heart? Lawyers who waste having a license not helping people who really need help. I know this is weird and completely out of order, okay? But... What did your parents teach you about parenting? I don't have time to go through your parents. I'd love to because they're interesting. I know how much they've shaped you, but I'll know if I know what did they teach you about parenting. I think it was, I don't mean to presumptuous on my part that I ended up my way, but I think what they never let up on, either one of them, as different as they were, was right from wrong. That and helping people to the extent they could in the positions they had in life. Yeah. Okay. What's the game plan? You don't seem like you're, you know, is there, are there any other major projects on your radar? I don't know. I'm trying to think if there are any major products. Um, I mean, I, it's a question you get asked a lot, you know, what, what is the game plan over the long haul? And, and my answer is usually I'm, I'm willing to keep at it full-time as long as people keep asking for the help and as long as I feel like I'm able to give it and make a difference in trying to help them. And that's true in the day-to-day -day work that I'm talking about, criminal defense, that kind of stuff, uh, state, federal. So any great project? I used to say about Sandy Downburn, get up each morning, throw 10 things against the wall, and one of them might stick. But when it's stuck... When it stuck, it was good stuff. <laughs> you know, and I still, I still tell Patsy, his widow, the same thing. That's the way everybody, I thought, looked at Sandy. So do I get these ideas once in a while? I'd really like to change a few things. Yeah. Is, is the time marching on where you may not you know, get the opportunity to do it? So you get younger people together and you throw it out. Okay. Uh, I mean, just little things, David. I'll give you an example. Put together, I put together this group of lawyers and I said, look, our sheriff's office is charging fees for people who've been arrested for per diems, 
toothpaste, blankets, all this other stuff, and even if they're innocent. And I got a real problem that innocent people should have to pay you for room and board when I shouldn't be here in the first place, and you're the guy who made the mistake putting me here. So they've been working on getting all the data and everything else, and they're all excited about it and everything else. So that's, you know, sort of passing it on, right? Don't, don't, it, don't quit. Don't quit. It, it seems like that's the byproduct of watch and listen, yeah. is you're watching what's going on in the world around you, listening to kind of what the problem is, and then trying to do something about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you ever knew Mark Halsey before he died from Smith Halsey up here. And Mark was president of the bar and chair of the JQC and all that other stuff. And he, he, I would add him to the list of somebody who took me under his wing. And Mark used to say, we talk about different things. And he used to say, look, all right, we got what the problem is figured out. What are we going to do about it? And he said, that's what we want to spend the time talking about. Let's quit talking about what the problem is. Everybody bitching and moaning. What are we going to do about it? That's the way Halsey. I mean, that was my read on Halsey. I don't want to hear the problem. I know what the problem is. What are we going to do about it? So. But it seems like you are, it's, it, it seems like you're crystallizing what would otherwise be vague problems everywhere you go with. Like when I hear about the, the room and board of someone innocent, I'm like, how does that come on your brain when a, presumably that's been happening for years? You know, how it's probably like everything. It's, it's a client comes to me and says, look, I got this notice from this collection agency and from the jail telling me I have, 15 more days to pay all this money. This client was a poster child of innocence. I mean, she was perfect. I'm like, wait a minute. You are determined to be innocent of this stuff, and they're bugging you for money. And, and then you sort of, then you, something wells up, and you go, this is BS. This is total BS, right? And they don't care. It's like I say, it's the government. They don't care. <laughs> So do you, uh, is, is your typical um, modus operandi give them a chance to do the right thing and then if not figure out how can I, you know, uh, leverage the legal system? Is that, do yeah, you I typically think, try to give them a chance? Sure, sure. I think, I think you should give them an opportunity to say, look, um, and, and the answers we got, we, they finally quit answering us. You know, we said, look, why are you doing this? What, what? What effort are you making to distinguish between innocent people and everything else? Well, what the, I don't want to say the, not excitement, but I think this group of lawyers got really turned on was when the District Court of Appeal issued an opinion saying, you can't charge that law enforcement. They had billed somebody who'd been in jail for like two years or a year and a half and was convicted of some other case in some other county, but not the case in this jail. And they went to recover all the money, and the district court said no. So everybody, all the lawyers got, hey, look at this. Now we got authority on our side, not not just fairness, right? Actually got the law. If you were to uh, be willing to be uh, vulnerable, I think we, we all learn a lot from the 
how people walk through losses or challenges or failures, whether they're professional or personal, whatever they are. Uh, I learn better through hearing how somebody walked through a loss or a failure than I often do hearing about their success. Is there a a loss or a failure personally or professionally that uh, your walking through it was shaped you? Yeah, well, I confess, as anybody who knew me would know, that I smoked a lot for a long time, okay? Then, uh, I'd say roughly about four years ago or so, for I was just getting a regular, the, the judge said, I'm going to do a PET scan, okay? I see this little spot on your lung, and it isn't grown in two years, but I just want to check it again. And this time, I'm going to do a PET scan instead of a CAT scan. And she was great. And she called me in. She said, I've been right all along. There's nothing wrong with that spot. However, you do have cancer of the esophagus, and it's metastasized to the liver. So you're worried about the smoking that you've done all the years. And I, I quit about six, maybe a year, year and a half before that. So I guess what I would say is, you know, you feel like Lou Gehrig. I'm one of the luckiest guys alive. You go through this massive chemo treatment. And you still sitting here talking to Dave Paul four years later, which shouldn't be the case. Um, and it turned out it wasn't, some of the doctors said it wasn't actually from the smoking, it's from reflux or something like that. But either way, you, you, you revisit a lot of things when that happens, a lot. I mean, all the way from children, wife, family, to what you do every day, what you wanted to do. And uh, so here you are, you know, you're, there is one thing that, that happened. So, yeah. Okay, everything and how did it, how did it for you, uh, were it, what did you do? Like, like, is your kind of, you seem incredibly healthy. Somebody's not going to see a video, but I mean, you look great. Uh, you know, how, how, how how did it affect how you how you're currently living compared to how you were living before the the cancer process? Well, I think I think in in a few ways. First of all, in you're talking about earlier watching and listening, right? Probably watching and listening even closer more than ever, right? Because you are finding yourself putting greater value on certain things that you're watching and listening to, right? You say, well, this could have been different. And uh, I wasn't paying that much attention to this or that much attention to that person, et cetera. <clears throat> so you appreciate a lot more things that you, you or you give, you, you may not appreciate them more, but you realize you appreciate them more, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So you got that. You've got the, you look at other problems, you, you, it almost makes you want to help them more because you're fortunate enough to somebody help you. Right now, it's not now it's not the principle of the thing; it's the reality of the thing. In terms of why would you help somebody else? Uh, so you, you're you're very very much aware of that. Um, <laughs> I, I will tell you, you talk about the on the the I don't know what you call it, a screensaver, whatever the picture you have is in your laptop, whatever comes on, is is our the picture of two young intensive care nurses. I'd spent eight and a half days in intensive care and 
septic shock for the first two days, which Mayanne can relate to. I went to visit Mayanne when she was in outer space in her experience. Uh, and you remember, and so each day you turn that thing on and you look in at that room that you were in. Got you from it was, and it was a product of massive chemo that got me. So you you do things to make sure you remind yourself that you don't forget and start taking things for granted again. You know, say, well, okay, now it's been four years, we're cool. Well, we're not cool, right? I'm looking at that hospital room with those two nurses that let me take their picture and looking at a couple other things all the time. You remember, and then you remember that the reason you're remembering is so you can help somebody else. What What do you do uh, to get kind of peace in your mind? You know, how do you, how do you, I know some is just DNA and, you know, but what do you, what do you do to kind of keep your mind healthy? And by healthy, I don't mean intellectually. I mean, I, I really actually mean the emotional side of us. How do you keep mentally and emotionally healthy? Well, I guess to the, to the extent I do, I'm not sure I share the, the premise that I do necessarily uh, because, uh, you know, you, you, while you go back and you look at these different problems that surround us and you go, wait a minute, why are we having all these problems? It's not, you know, uh, I guess it's it's something, and it may be a matter of escape more than anything else. I've always come from a habit of you just work hard. You work all the time. There's just no let up to it. And so whatever you're doing, you're working hard at. And so whether that's an escape or that's how I stay sane, I don't know. But you know, when when we hang up, I'm gonna do something. <laughs> You I'm keep moving. You keep active. Yeah. yeah. And, and I get frustrated if there isn't something going on that I want to I get moving on. Uh, then you, you find it. You, you watch and listen yeah. and find something to keep it moving. That's great. Well, um, Hank, I appreciate your time so much. I really appreciate the wisdom that you have. I appreciate the uh the impact you've had, I hope everyone else leaves um, with some level of either conviction or encouragement about um, trying to make the world a little better place and, and putting the gifts and resources they have into play like you have and, and you've encouraged others uh, to do that. Thank you.